Chapter 18 of Tracked by a Tattoo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tracked by a Tattoo by Fergus Hume. Chapter 18 On the 21st of June. Up to the present time, the visits of Fanks to Taxton on Thames had been a complete failure. He had been thwarted by Hersham. He more than suspected that he had been tricked by Anne, and he saw no means of obtaining any information likely to lead to the elucidation of the mystery which enveloped the death of Sir Gregory Fellinger. It was in very low spirits that the detective returned to the Royal Arms, and after a good dinner, which somewhat cheered him, he sat down with a pipe to consider what he should do next. He had no hope of obtaining any information from Hersham or Anne Colmer, as for some reason or another each of them declined to speak. Fanks thought they could put him on the right track if they pleased, but he saw no means by which he could force them to speak openly. In spite of his threats he could arrest neither of them, as he had not sufficient evidence to do so. Unable, therefore, to force or to flatter them into plain speaking, he was completely baffled in his efforts to solve the enigma in this direction. For the time being he was at a standstill. In this dilemma he left the decision regarding his future movements to chance, and in the expectation of hearing something of value to his plans, he strolled into the tap-room of the hotel. Here he hoped to find the village gossips, and to gather from their idle talk information concerning Sir Louis Fellinger, Dr. Binjoy, and the negro servant. However, there was no one in the room save a bent and crooked old man with a pair of keen eyes. He was seated in a corner of the settle, with a tankard of beer before him, and with a garrulous complacency he introduced himself as Simeon Wagg, the parish clerk of Taxton-on-Thames. He had a long tongue and a fund of gossip at his disposal, and he was ready to afford Fanks all the information in his power about the parish and its inhabitants. I have more education than most folk about here," piped this ancient. "'There ain't much as I don't know if I do so choose. Thirty years, sir, hey, I've been official in this year church and village, and I've buried and married and christened with five persons. They come, they go. But old Simeon, he stay like the church itself. He, <laughs> he, "'I suppose you know Sir Louis Fellinger?' "'I know Mr. Louis Fellinger.' corrected the aged gossip. He weren't no baronet when I seed him. Now he have gone into the house o' lores, as I've heard. But he was in the third house as you go down by Fox's farm. Ah, uh, yes, I knows him. Sold hisself to old Scratchy did. What do you mean, Mr. Wagg? Why, this here Mr. Fellinger, he was apothecary and chemist, and he raised the enemy of mankind, as the saying goes and they do say as the black man wore a devil, from all of which good Lord deliver us, as I said to church. Did you know Mr. Binjoy? Aye, he were large and beer-barrel-like. Oh, this, and the words he said, Parson couldn't speak like he. He went away with Mr. Fellinger to be a baronet, as I heard tell. Did the negro servant go with them? Ah, no. To black devil, he was turned out of doors on twenty-first, he was. I know to time I do, because black man, he nearly run me over on his bicycle, he did. 
Fanks pricked up his ears at this. It was on the twenty-first that the murder had been committed in London. He addressed himself with renewed attention to the task of extracting information from this piece of antiquity. How was it that the negro nearly ran you over on his bicycle? Now I'll just tell you I will, said Simeon, settling himself down for a long story. This here black man, Caesar is his name, he wore a green coat with brass buttons he did. I knowed him in the dark by that coat I did. Was it in the dark that he ran over you? asked Fanks. Aye, it just were, mister. I was on to Lunan Road, I was. About nine, as I could tell by the striking clock for the church. And this here black man, he come along, he did, on the devil machine, and he laid me flat on my back, he did. And I bean't so young as I was, mister. I shouted to he, but he never said nothing he didn't. He ran on and left me lying on my back in the dirt, he did. I were main angry, I were. I don't wonder at it, Mr. Wegg," said Fanks amiably. But how did you know it was the negro Caesar? I said his grain coat, I tell you. His face was muffled up like, but his coat were plain into gas lamp it were. I have seen the coat heaps of times, I have, and the next day he were sent away, he were. This story made Fanks wonder if Caesar had been up to town on the twenty-first. A negro had committed the murder in Tooley's Alley between six and seven. So if he returned to Taxton-on-Thames on a bicycle, there was plenty of time for him to come down before nine o'clock, or, as the old man said, after nine o'clock. A good weeman could easily cover the distance between London and Taxton-on-Thames in two hours. Again, Mrs. Boazov had sworn that the murderer had been arrayed in a green coat with brass buttons, and this description matched that of the negro who had so nearly run over Wegg on the London road. Time and date corresponded, and then the negro had been dismissed the next day, he had been smuggled out of the way by his master. On the whole, Fanks thought that matters looked rather black against the stout doctor. He proceeded with his inquiries. Did Dr. Binjoy discharge his servant? or did Sir Lewis? "'Where, there, now,' said the aged one, taking the pipe out of his mouth. "'Blamed if I know who did give him the kick-out. Mr. Fellinger, he were ill, he were, and he had been for weeks. The doctor was with him, he was, and I never saw one of em, and no one else I has heard of did, for days and days. But Mrs. Jerusalem, she is the housekeeper to Mr. Fellinger, she said as how Caesar had been turned away.' He got off for the village, he did, and I never seed him since I didn't. Then the cousin of Muster Lewis died, he did, and Muster Fellinger, he went away with the doctor to be baronet, he did. You don't think that Dr. Binjoy was up in London on the night you met Caesar on the bicycle? No, sir, I don't. Why, Mr. Fellinger, he were ill, he were, and the doctor, he kept in the sick room, he did. No one ever saw him for days, they didn't. From this information it seemed to Fanks as though there were an understanding between Sir Lewis and the doctor. This old creature, who represented the village opinion, was quite sure that Dr. Binjoy had been in attendance on Fellinger on the night of the twenty-first. Yet Fanks knew by personal observation that Binjoy, under the name of Renshaw, had been in Tooley's Alley. He would not have had returned to Taxon on Thames on that night, as the house in Great Auk Street had been watched and yet Fanks had proved beyond all doubt 
that Renshaw and Benjoy were one and the same person. Was it possible that Sir Lewis was telling a lie to screen Benjoy from the consequences of his being in town? And was it possible that the two had employed the negro Caesar to commit the crime, and then had smuggled him out of the way, say, to Bombay, so that he should not betray them? In a word, were Fellinger and Binjoy guilty of the murder of the cousin of the former? It seemed impossible. And yet, as Sir Lewis was employing Fanks to hunt down the assassin, it was hard to believe. The conversation of Simeon Wagg only introduced a new perplexity into this perplexing case. There was nothing more to be got out of the old clerk, so Fanks retired to bed in a very melancholy frame of mind. He did not know which way to move in the midst of such contradictory information. The night brought counsel, and the next morning Fanks arose with a definite object. He would return to town and advertise for the negro. Caesar must have left his bicycle somewhere, so if he advertised for a negro in a green coat with brass buttons, he might find out something. Those with whom the bicycle had been left would be able to give a description of the negro who had arrived and departed with it. And so, Thanks hoped to learn if the black murder of Tully's Alley was the same as the servant Caesar of Dr. Binjoy. Regarding the shielding of the doctor by Louis Fellinger, the detective resolved to leave that question until he went to Mere Hall and saw the two men together. "'I am afraid that Crate will have to go to Bombay after all,' said Fanks to himself as he left the hotel. He did not go at once to town, as he wished to see both Hersham and Ann Colmer. Also, he was desirous of having an interview with the mother. Halfway down the street he met with the journalist who saluted him in rather a sullen fashion. "'I was just about to call on you,' said Hersham. "'I wish to go to town by the midday train, if you have no objection.' "'You can go as soon as you please,' retorted Fanks. "'You are not so much good to me that I care to keep you here.' "'You need not make yourself so infernally disagreeable, Fanks,' said the young man tartly. "'I have told you all I know, and so has Miss Comer. As to that, I have my own opinion, Hersham. I certainly think that you and she have a secret between you which you will not share with me. It does not concern you. Ah, you have a secret, then. Yes, I have, but it is private business, and has nothing to do with the death of that titled scoundrel. I should like to judge of that for myself, said Fanks coldly. However, I dare say I'll find out all I wish to know without your assistance." Hersham came forward and laid his hand on the arm of the detective. "'I say, Fanks,' he observed earnestly, "'I know I'm not treating you well, but you must make allowances for the natural fear I feel at being brought into contact with the law. I know something, and I should like to tell it to you, but I can't make up my mind to do so, yet. Still, I give you my word of honour that, if you ask me again next week, I shall tell you all. I shall place my life and liberty in your hands." "'Good heavens, man!' cried the startled Fanks. "'You don't mean to say that you are concerned in the murder?' "'No, I am not. But when I tell you all, you will see why I did not speak before. Give me a week to make up my mind.' "'I'll give you the week.' said the detective briefly and without further speech. 
Hersham took his leave in an abrupt manner, evidently relieved to be so dismissed. On presenting himself at Briar Cottage, Fanks was at once admitted, and was shown by the servant, a neat-handed Phyllis, into a different sitting-room from the one he had seen before. In a large chair by the window, which looked out on the garden, an old lady was seated. She was dressed completely in white, and the lower part of her body was swathed in a shawl of Chinese crepe. Her face was pale and careworn, and her eyes were red-rimmed as from constant crying. An open Bible lay on her lap, and from this she raised her eyes as Fanks entered. He had little hesitation in guessing that this was Mrs. Colmer, the paralytic mother of the living Anne and the dead Emma. "'You must excuse my rising to receive you,' she said in a low and sweet voice. "'But I am unable to move hand or foot. Doubtless my daughter has told you of my affliction. My daughter will see you presently.' Fanks bowed, and there was a silence between them for a few moments. He glanced round the neatly furnished room at the pictures and photographs, but among them all he could not see one of the dead Emma. At the elbow of Mrs. Colmer, on a small table, stood a pile of photographs, at which she had evidently been looking prior to his entrance, and Fanks surmised that a portrait of Emma might be there. He was anxious to discover one, if possible as Anne had denied that there was a photograph of her sister in existence, save the one which she had sought at Sir Gregory's chambers. Fanks thought that if he could find another in the pile at Mrs. Comer's elbow, he would be able to convict Anne out of her own mouth, and expose the falsity of the motive she gave for her visit. He cast about for some means whereby to accomplish this purpose. "'You will excuse me, Mrs. Comer,' he said, rising from his seat but that is an excellent picture of the Bay of Naples." He had crossed over to the other side of the room to look at the picture, and so found himself standing by the small table which held the sundry pictures. In turning away, he pretended to stumble, and so knocked over the table and photographs. Thousand apologies,' said Fanks in confusion, stooping to pick them up. He looked in vain for the face he sought but he made a discovery which startled him not a little. The last photograph which he picked up off the carpet was one of Mrs. Bozoff. End of chapter 18